Uh, we are in our series called Upside Down, and the very premise of this series is that Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago, and when he did, he turned the world upside down. And he has empowered us and equipped us to do the same thing. You know, he, by his life and his death and his resurrection, literally did something that we could have never done in a million years, which was to bring us back into relationship with God, to give us personal access into his, room, his throne room, into the Holy of Holies, and to know him on a personal level. Incredible privilege and blessing that we have as followers of Jesus. And then when he went back to heaven, he empowered his disciples in the early church to do the same thing, and they did. And it's, it's been going on ever since. We as his disciples in the, in, the, in the 21st century are designed to do the same thing. And uh, my text verse actually gives a, a little bit of an example of how the early church was working. In fact, if you would stand with me, please, as we always do, just in honor of reading God's word. Out of uh, Acts 17, Paul and Silas were going around Israel preaching the gospel, and many Jews were being persuaded and, and, and receiving salvation, but some weren't. Some were not appreciating it very much at all. And so this, this passage here talks about those that were not happy about it. In Acts 17, verses 5 to 7, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Jason was the man that was hosting Paul and Silas uh, while they were in Thessalonica. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. These guys, these, these Jews that were not persuaded were accidentally praising God and giving God glory for what was happening in their society. You know, Jesus came to make those things that weren't important, important in our life. He turned everything upside down. And that's exactly what he wants to do in our life too. Would you pray with me today? Father, we love you today. We thank you for your presence in this place. Lord, we thank you for the blessing and the privilege it is to be able to come together like this. Lord, we ask that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified, that you would get all of the glory today for every good thing that happens in our hearts. Lord, would you do your work in our hearts today? Help our hearts to be good soil, to receive your word and let it produce fruit in our lives for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, God bless you. You can be seated today. So last week, we started the series off by talking about how Jesus turns our identity upside down. He changes who we are when we give our lives to him. Literally makes us a different person, that we are now in the family of God. We are children of the king. And that he loves us because we're his. And this week, we're going to talk about how he doesn't just change who we are. He changes what we do our priorities in life. You know, for us as followers of Jesus, we have different priorities than those that would say they're not followers of Jesus. The things that are vital in our life change when we give our life and our heart to him. So the title of my message today is Check Your Vitals. You like my little play on words there? Thank you. So whether we know it or not, we prioritize our lives. And, and to kind of get us started on this, I want to just get your, your wheels turning a little bit in your head, get you thinking about priorities and what matters more in life to us. Uh, and so I'm going to do a little exercise with you here, just put a few things up on the screen. just want you to think about which one is more important to you, what matters more in your life. Okay, so we'll start with salty or sweet. Now, you don't have to answer out loud. Frankly, on this one, we all know the answer is sweet. That's a given. Uh, 
price or quality? So is it more important to you if you're purchasing something to get the best price possible or do you want to have better quality? Uh, sleeping in or getting an early start? I know everybody on these rows right here would say sleeping in. We know that. Uh, but is it more important to you to sleep in or be able to get an early start to the day? Is it more important to you to be considered as someone that's strong or kind? And not that you can't be both, but you know, we have a lean. One of these is more important to us than the other. Uh, to be driven or easygoing. Uh, also kind of leaning towards that would be to be successful or to have peace in life. That's a tough one if you had to choose between the two. Uh, to be open-minded or have absolutes. To be relevant or to have ideals that you stick to in your life. And then finally, to be generous or disciplined in life. So when I go through these, we're all thinking about like what's more important to us. Like, ooh, I want to be generous. Ooh, I want to be disciplined too. And you have a lean on most of these. Which one would be more important to you? Because what we do is we all prioritize our lives. And if you're intentional, you prioritize your life yourself. But if you're not intentional, your life prioritizes itself for you. Because the things that are urgent that are hitting you in the face every day are what get precedent over everything else if we're not intentional. And what, what we prioritize in our life determines the direction of our life. You know, you don't accidentally, you don't drift in a good direction in life by being unintentional. You discipline yourself to have a good direction in life and to get to a good place in life. And you know, priorities are different for us depending on where we are in life. They're different for us depending on uh, the culture that we live in, but they're, they're the most different for us for those of us that would say that we are followers of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus should change our priorities. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to flip our priorities upside down when we go from living for ourselves to living for him. His desire is to completely change our priorities in our life. And you know, when you, when you do live your life for Jesus, when you say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Some of the priorities in your life will change immediately. Some take more time as you grow in your relationship with God and you start to prioritize things based on a maturity in that relationship with him, right? Like for me, when I first decided I was really gonna live for Jesus, I was about 19 years old, some things changed immediately. You know, what I determined, how I determined success changed immediately because up until that point, it was all about how much money I was gonna make and, and about having my family and having everything that I want to make myself comfortable was the top priority. Well, when I decided to give my life to Jesus, I realized immediately that now it's not about that anymore. It's about surrendering all of it to him and living for him and not for myself. So that ultimate priority changed immediately. But some priorities didn't change right away. Some took time. You know, unfortunately, the music I listened to didn't change right away. Still listening to dumb music that I shouldn't have been listening to. The movies I was watching, you know, the, 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 what I was willing to let my eyes see didn't change right away. Some of those priorities had to change over time as I grew in my relationship with him. And that's how it is for all of us. Our priorities will change as we grow in our relationship with God. But I can tell you from experience that Jesus doesn't want to just tweak our priorities. He wants to flip them upside down. Not, not because of any other reason other than he just loves us and he knows what really is best for us. And here's the thing though, church, and we all, we all kind of know this, but the problem we get into sometimes in the church, if you've been somebody that you would say you've been a Christian for a long time, is that we can get into more where we're focused more on behavior modification than we really are on heart change. And I can tell you today, Jesus is not interested in behavior modification. He's not interested in us just looking the part. 
He's interested in changing our purpose, in changing those things in our life that make us tick, what gets us out of bed in the morning, that it would change all of that, that it's not about trying to look like a good Christian looks, but that our heart has changed, that, that what's driving us, what's, what's moving us in our life and mo moving us forward and what we're passionate about completely changes, that it's about him now and not about us. Because, you know, passion is really just what you're willing to suffer for because you believe it in your heart. We're, we all have passions in our life, and we're willing to suffer for those passions. And Jesus wants us to get to that place where we're willing to suffer for him more than anything else, that our passion would be about him in our life. And, you know, one of the biggest areas of frustration that we struggle with in the church is, is we know what the Bible says, we know how we're supposed to live, but we're constantly setting ourselves up for failure because we can't live the word exactly the way it's meant to be lived. And, and as we try, because we try to do it because of the, the concept or the mindset of behavior modification, we set ourselves up for failure because it's not about just trying to get us to act right, which is tough because especially when you're, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid and I was you know, in church and we were around our Christian family and friends, there was a certain way I was expected to act. You know, my mom would say, this is how you're supposed to act. And it, it, I looked at the part, you know? I mean, I didn't always feel it, but I looked it because I was told that's how a Christian looks, you know? And, and sometimes, you know, you've heard the kids say your, your parent tells you to sit down and, and you sit down because they tell you to, but you tell them, you know, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. You know, it's, it's like my heart's not in it. I'm doing it because you're making me do it, but my heart's not really in it. And I think I could safely say for all of us here today, if you are a Christian, that you want to do what God wants you to do. But God's not about just trying to get you to do what he wants you to do. He's, wants, he's trying to get you to change what you want to do, that you would want to do what he wants you to do because of your love for him, your passion for him, and he actually changes your heart and transforms you, and it's not just about adhering to a set of rules, but it's really about living your life for him. The gospel fundamentally changes what we love when the gospel gets from our head to our heart. When it gets in here, it changes everything. It's not just a thing anymore. We don't just do the things because we're supposed to do them. We do it because we're passionate about it, because we love him. And the only way for that to happen in our lives is to allow the Holy Spirit to invade every area of our life, to invade our preconceived notions, to invade our philosophical ideas, to invade the way we look at life, to invade our way of thinking, to invade everything, including the way we feel. Because the only way our priorities are going to change in life is if we really feel that way. Because the reality is, church, that we are a lot more about, we, what drives the car in our life is more about how we feel than what we know. Now, your feelings can follow what you know, but if you just know something, I had a lot of head knowledge of the Bible long before I ever gave my life to Jesus. It didn't do anything. It did, I knew it, but it didn't change me until I felt it. And God, is, he wants to be Lord over our feelings too. He gave us our feelings. He gave us our emotions. And we can submit them under the Lordship of Jesus and know that he can lead us and he can cause our priorities, our purpose, our passions to be about him and about nothing else. That's his desire in our life. And some of you are saying, well, that's great. So how do I do that? I'm ready. I'm willing to do that. That's what I want to. I want, my, I want to be serving Jesus because I feel it, not just because I was raised this way and I know what the right thing to do is. So how do I do it? Well, I, I hope to help you in that today, but I got to also tell you that some of you aren't going to like the answer because it's not a quick fix. 
It's about a life of discipline. It's about a life of going from what you know to what you feel in your heart. The feelings that we're looking for in our relationship with Jesus follow our commitment to him. There's no place for us to be haphazardly serving or following Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and verse 6, look what he says here. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it says that they will be filled. Filled with what? I believe that he's saying that they'll be filled with an evidence of a changed life. That you'll be filled not just with head knowledge, but you'll be filled with a passion for him. He says, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for me because I'll fill you with that. He says, I'll help you in your feelings. You see, I used to struggle with this verse, and I've shared this before, because when I read that and I think, okay, I can't make myself hungry. You know, I can, if I just ate a big meal and I'm sitting there and I'm decided, you know what, I want to be hungry again. I want to eat some more. It doesn't work that way. Now, I could force some food in. And when I'm a teenage boy, I do that, right? But as I get older, I can't do that because you know how it makes you feel afterwards. You can't make yourself hungry. So I'm like, Lord, what does that mean to hunger and thirst for you? How do I make myself hungry? Well, first of all, something the Lord has showed me is that hunger is a sign of health. See, you're not hungry when you're sick. You know, when you get the flu or you get a fever, what's the first thing to go? Your appetite. So hunger is a sign of health in our life. So a healthy person, first of all, we have to be healthy. We have to be emotionally healthy to be able to even hunger and thirst after him. Okay? But then he also showed me that this hunger and thirsting after him is not necessarily about an appetite that we have like you would get for food. But it is about a determination. It is about a dedication. It is about a commitment to going after him, to be chasing after our God. That's what he wants us to do. Now, he chases after us too. And we can't, we can't uh, earn anything with him. He gives us everything, but he's saying, I want you to chase me. I want you to be devoted. I want you to be a God chaser that comes after me. He says, when you seek me, you will find me when? When you seek me with all your heart. That's about passion. That's about commitment. That's about determination of going after Jesus. That's when we get to experience the feelings matching up with what we know in our mind and in our head. We have to be intentional. And I can tell you the number one way by far from personal experience the number one way by far is to get our feelings, our passion, our purpose to match up with what we know is to be in the Word. We have to be in the Word. Guys, let me tell you something today, okay? I just want to take a moment here to talk about this, this leather book because it is so much more than leather and pages. This is a living and active Word. This is the very Word of God. This is the breath of God that we have. And you know, we as Pentecostals are known for not knowing our Bibles very well. We're known for being emotional. We're known for being uh, loud. We're known for being demonstrative. We're known for being extraordinary in our expression, but we're not known for burying our face in this. We're not known for knowing the word real well. And I, frankly, I would really like to change that. Would you? I think we need to change that. I, we need to know the word. If the only bit of the word you're getting is on Sunday morning or on Instagram when people post verses with really cool backgrounds, it's not enough. This word is life to us. But you don't get to experience the life of the word unless you're in it. I fear that we, we approach the word of God too much like we do YouTube videos where we just fast forward to the good parts and try to just see the highlights. And that's not what the word of God is about. 
statistically less than one-third of church-going Christians regularly read their Bible. That's not people that say they're Christian. That's people, that's these people right here, all of you in this room. It says that a less than a third of us are reading our Bible regularly. How do we expect the, the God to transform our lives if we are not going into and devouring the only thing he gave us, which is this. Now, yes, we have his Holy Spirit. And I believe wholeheartedly in the fact that the Holy Spirit can reveal his word to us, but he can't reveal something we haven't read. You know, the Bible says, don't worry about what you'll say, the, that the Holy Spirit will bring back to your remembrance the things. You can't remember something you've never known. I'd like to think I could, but I can't. We have to know his word. It's so important that we are in his word. His word is what changes our life. And this is a discipline that changes us. I can tell you, like I said, I knew a lot of the Bible even before I gave my life to Jesus. I knew the stories. I knew the stories of Noah and David. And I knew all the highlights. I, I did scripture memory when I was a kid. I was in Bible memory stuff. I went to Christian school for a few years. I knew a lot of stuff, but it didn't do anything in my heart until I sat down one day and I said, you know what? I don't know my Bible at all. And I'm going to take every day for a year, God, and I'm going to read my Bible. And you know what happened? It was a miracle. I got saved. I thought I was saved, but I wasn't because I had to read it to know it. And when I read it and I knew it, it changed my life and I've never been the same. And I still read it every day. With a few exceptions, I read this book every day. And you know what? There's days it's the greatest thing ever. It's better than the best movie you'll ever watch. And then there's days where it's a sacrifice. You know, when you're reading Leviticus, it's a sacrifice. I just got done reading Leviticus and I read fast. All those laws and commands and sometimes it's tough. But man, it, it still it gives life. And even, even when I'm reading the books that aren't as fun, I always find something. I always find something that's like, wow, that's really good. That's really good. Thank you for your truth, God. Don't count on your pastor or your friends or your parents to teach you the word of God. We can all have it. You got to get it on your phone now for free in multiple versions. So it's a blessing and let's, let's see it that way as a blessing. But it's a challenge in our life, partly because we're just not desperate. That's right. We're just not desperate for God, church. That's right. You know, we live in a culture that does not breed a lot of desperation because we're so blessed. Yep. There's not a lot of desperation. You know, if you want something, you can pretty much get it. You know, you might have to wait a little bit or you might have to take out a loan or you might have to, you know, there's things we can't achieve based on our economic situation sometimes. But for the most part, we're pretty well taken care of, right? So there's not a great need. There's not a desperation for things in our culture. And it, it even bleeds into our relationship with God because we are so blessed, because we don't have to be incredibly desperate for a lot of things in our life. And so let's be honest. Sometimes we don't feel like we need to have a desperation for God. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I struggle with it my own, myself some days. Where I don't know, I don't feel that desperation. And I'm not saying we have to feel it every minute of every day, but there has to be a knowledge in our life of knowing that I need you for the very air I breathe. In you, I live and move and have my being. You are everything, Jesus. You are my heartbeat. You are the air in my lungs. I can't get out of bed without you, Jesus. Because, and I need you in every aspect, in every way, every minute of every day in my life. And having that in desperation for him. And this is a problem for us because frankly, we have this incessant need as human beings that is, that is just about impossible to stop to compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to others and what that does is we measure ourselves up against somebody else 
and we think, you know what, I'm not that bad. I know the Bible says I'm evil, my heart's deceitful above all else, and I can't trust myself, and that I'm evil, and God's good, and I'm separate from him. Without him, I'm nothing. I know all those things, but really, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as that dude down the street. I'm a pretty good person, and we measure ourselves against people. What's the problem with that is our measuring stick. The measuring stick we're using is the problem. Right? Let me give you a little quick analogy. Let's say that I live in this little gated communal commune area where it's just me and the people in this, this little community, and nobody comes in and nobody goes out. And in this community, I'm one of the tallest ones in there. Glory to God. Okay? Not only that, I'm also one of the most athletic. Glory to God. And we have a basketball league, and I'm dominating. I am a stud in this league and just kicking tail. And I'm, I mean, nobody can stop me. And I just think I'm the greatest thing ever. But all of a sudden, somebody comes into our little commune, takes me out, and takes me to play a pickup game with a bunch of NBA players. Suddenly, I'm not so great. Suddenly, I can't even get a shot off. I can't even get the ball without them stealing it, right? And they're dunking on me, and, and I'm just looking up at their chin. What has changed? I'm the exact same person. Nothing in me has changed. The only thing that has changed is my measuring stick. The only thing that's changed is my perspective. And, and I'm not trying to compare us to God by using me and NBA players. That's a crude comparison because God is so much higher and so much greater than anything we could ever be. But I'm trying to give you just an illustration, an idea of what it can look like when we have a change of perspective and knowing, yes, God, not only do I need you for my salvation, I need you for everything. I'm desperate for you, God. I'm desperate for you. If you don't move on my behalf, I don't know what I'm going to do. Amen. And not thinking, I just need you when I need you, God. Just, you know, stay in the corner. I'll, I'll call you when I need you. It's not who he is. He wants to invade every area of our life. Yes, and we need to have a desperation for him. Hallelujah. And you might say, well, why do I have to be so desperate? What's the big deal? I mean, I know I need him to be saved, so isn't that good enough? Well, it's not if you really want to live this Christian life the way God has called us to live it. In fact, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. He says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, so Paul's saying that we with unveiled faces are being transformed into his likeness. All right? We're being transformed. That means not just the head, that means the heart. We're being more like him. Our passion is more about him than it is about ourselves now. Okay, so who has unveiled faces? Well, you have to go back two verses to verse 16, where he says that whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So he's saying in this chapter, he's saying that we all have veiled faces, have a veil of our face, so we can't see God, okay? We're blinded to who God is. But he says that anyone who turns towards the Lord, the veil is taken away. Okay, so turning towards the Lord is not some casual turning towards him, like almost annoyed, like you, know, like you are when you're in the living room watching TV and your kid comes down and says they need your attention. And you're like, what? Not that kind of turn, okay? I know none of you do that. I do that sometimes, but I'm sure none of you do. But it's more of a turning away and turning towards the Lord. You know the word repentance means to turn away. So we're turning away from sin, from the, the fleshly lusts that we have in our life, and we're turning to the Lord. And it's not just turning 
to him. It's embracing him. It is clinging to him. It is a desperation for him in our life. So to, so to boil this all down, Paul is saying that we all have blinded faces, but when we turn away from the, the sinful lusts of the flesh and we desperately turn to God, we are transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. I don't know about you, but I don't wanna live this Christian life just trying to get through. I wanna be transformed into his likeness. I wanna be more like him today than I was yesterday and more like him tomorrow than I am today because it's not just for my good, it's also for his glory. And if we don't have a desire, a passion in our life to glorify him with our life, we're missing something. We're missing something. And we have to even ask ourselves, do I love Jesus? Am I really saved if I don't have any desire to see him glorified in my life? Because that's what this salvation is. It's about glorifying him. It's about living for him. So we turn to him and we are transformed into his likeness. Now, let me just say very quickly, I, I do know that where we are and where we live and our society, that culture, it will always be a tension to manage in our life. Okay, and I'm not here to bash on culture. You know, we, we, can't, we can't hold culture to the same standard as God holds us because they still have the veil over their faces. So it's, it's, in a way, it's not even their fault. And so we don't, we don't live in little communes like I talked about in our little gated communities and never come out. We actually live in the world. We're meant to live in the world. We're meant to be salt to this world. We're meant to be a city on a hill to this world. So we're meant to be what Jesus needs us to be because for some people, we're the only representation of Jesus they're ever going to get. So we have to be part of it, but it's hard, isn't it? It's tough because, like I said last week, the world is not some passive entity that's sitting over there in the corner hoping we give it some attention. It is aggressively vying for our allegiance. We know that every day. In, in this building, it's like we get to live in a little bubble here for a couple hours. But man, the world wants your allegiance in a desperate way. And it's working hard to get it. And there are all kinds of isms in our society right now that we're having to deal with that, it, that work against us really being passionate for Jesus. The first one is postmodernism. It's very prevalent in our society today. It's a, it's a general distrust of grand ideologies. Basically says don't trust anyone, especially don't trust organized religion. And that is very prevalent in our society today. Pluralism, it says everybody's views and truths should be heard and explored. That, there's, that we can't just talk about just your way is not the only way. There's, there's a lot of different truths out there and we need, to be, you know, we need to be sensitive to everybody's truth and listen to what they have to say too and give them platform and, and respect what they want. That's it's pluralism, it's very evident in our society. And then also relativism which you all know has been around for a long, long time and has grown, gained steam over the last couple decades, meaning basically that there are no absolutes. Everything's relative. It's all based on culture, based on your experience. To say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that, that is so closed-minded, I can't believe you'd even say that. It doesn't make any sense. Every, everything is relative. If, if I get to God some other way, that should be fine. And that's in our society. And we're seeing that. And, we're, and there may be even some of you in here that really feel some of these might even be true. And I'm not here to, to tell you how, that you're wrong, and I'm not here to beat you up or tell you that that doesn't go with the Word of God. But what I am telling you today is that the Word of God is also very clear in what it says about what truth is, that there is really a truth. There's not multiple truths. And that the truth of God is that God sent his son Jesus to live a life and die for our sins and reconcile us back to him. And it is through him that we get access to the Father. Amen. 
And that's what we believe. But in our society, that is not a popular viewpoint anymore. And so we have to, we have to work, fight against that in culture. And we don't, we don't fight with our fists. Our fight is spiritual. The Bible's clear too. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the evil forces in the heavenly realms. And so we don't hate the people that disagree with us. We love them. We love them into the kingdom, hopefully. That's what somebody did for you. And that's what God calls us to do for others too. We are called to live counterculturally. Paul said in Romans 12 too, beautiful verse. Most of you know this verse. It says, do not conform. In other words, do not assimilate any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We don't conform, we transform. That's what God's called us to do. So Paul's not telling us, just remove yourself from society. Don't even be part of it. He's not saying that at all. He's saying don't conform, don't assimilate, but be transformed. And in turn, you will help other people's lives be transformed as well for the glory of God. Amen? So what I want to do is I want to give you a couple of uh, priorities that I believe God has for us as, as his followers uh, that would, the world would say are very upside down. So upside down priorities. Just going to give you a couple of these quickly. And the first one is sacrifice, to live a lifestyle of sacrifice, that sacrifice would be a priority in our life. And you might say, well, that's no big deal. That's not exclusive to Christianity. Everybody knows what it means to have to live sacrifice in their life. Ah, yes, but the difference is when you're doing it in the Christian faith, it's not for yourself. It's not for your glory. See, when, when most people, when they sacrifice, it's for their own glory. It's, you know, I sacrifice spending right now so I can save money so that I can retire one day. It's still in the end result is for my good and for my glory. Or I sacrifice by not eating pizza and hamburgers every day so that I can be healthy and live a long life. It's still for me. It's still for my glory. Well, when we sacrifice, when we're talking about a lifestyle of sacrifice for the Christian, it's talking about not sacrificing for your own glory, but to bring him glory. It's about bringing glory to Jesus in our life. And again, as a follower of Jesus, this should resonate with us because that's what he's called us to do. He says, I sacrificed it all for you. Now I want you to sacrifice your life for me so that I would be glorified in it. In fact, Paul says it in Romans 12, 1, the previous verse to the one I just read. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship, Paul says in this verse. It's an act of worship to sacrifice our lives, to, to sacrifice our own desires, to, to sacrifice our own will, that it would be about him and about his will. And why, you might ask, does God demand this of us? Why does he ask this of us? Well, there's lots of reasons. But, and, but none stronger than the fact that your life isn't your own. And we have to have that mindset that our life is not our own anymore. Once you step over that line from, from being a person far from God to being a person that is close to God, you go from your life being about you to your life not being about you. You are not the center of your world anymore. You're not the star of your own show. You are living your life now for him, for his purpose. We say it all the time, but God is for God first. He loves us, and he gave himself for us. He definitely demonstrated his love for us, but he's for himself first. He's about glorifying himself. He's about drawing us to himself for his glory and for his kingdom. So our life isn't about us anymore, but also because there is a world out there who still has the veil over their face. 
And for whatever reason, God chooses to use our sacrifice to help remove that veil off of people's faces. Our sacrifice can actually draw people to Jesus. People see it because people know, because we're people too, and people know that sacrifice is not easy. So when people see us living a life of sacrifice because we believe in something greater than ourselves, there's a spiritual application that happens there that we don't even have to understand, but it draws people to Jesus. It draws people to our Jesus. And I, I want to just take a moment here today to just to honor somebody in my own life that I have seen that played out very, very clearly. It was my aunt, um, who some of you know, uh, just passed away this week, just, just went home to be with the Lord on Tuesday afternoon. And a wonderful, wonderful woman of God lived a life of sacrifice for Jesus. She was 82 years old, never got married. She knew the call in her life was to pray, intercede, and sacrifice for Jesus. I mean, that's all she did. That, that's the life that she lived. She sacrificed financially. She sacrificed her time. She sacrificed her comforts all the time. She lived a lifestyle of doing it. In fact, she, she supported me on many of my missions trips, and, and I know she, her prayers for me are part of the reason that I am where I am today. I know it without a question. Wonderful woman of God. In fact, one of the best stories I've ever heard, she, she, lived, she was a live-in maid and caretaker for this, this couple that was very wealthy, but they, they, did not, they were not Christians. They didn't have any relationship with the Lord, never went to church, didn't even pretend. They just were kind of who they were. They were nice people, but didn't have a, have a relationship with the, with the Lord. And so she stayed with them for decades, living with them when she could have done many, many other things. And she lived with them. And I know it was because she just felt like the Lord told her, called her to be there, to be an example to them. She would testify of God's faithfulness in her life whenever given the opportunity, but you know, she would never pushed it down their throat or anything like that. But uh, when, this, when the woman was in her 90s, she came to my aunt one day and she said, you know, I can tell that I'm getting close to the end. And she said, I'm starting to think about death and I'm starting to think about what happens after I die. And she said, if anybody knows what happens after you die, you do. I want you to talk to me about it. So my aunt sat down with that woman in their living room and talked to her and led her to Jesus right there on the couch. A few weeks later, that woman died. Lived 90 years, couldn't have cared less about God. Got to a place in her life where she knew she was about to, there was gonna be a day of reckoning. And she came to my aunt and my aunt led her to Jesus literally a few weeks before she died. And that woman got to, got to be in eternity forever with Jesus because of the faithfulness of my aunt. And such an incredible, incredible blessing uh, that she was able to experience that. And uh, you know, when I, I got the text on Tuesday from my sister-in-law that she had taken her last breath just a few minutes earlier, and I, I couldn't help but just get teared up because I just was thinking she was so ready to see Jesus. I mean, she couldn't wait. You couldn't have a conversation with her without her talking about the faithfulness of God and just her praising God in the middle of your conversation, you know. And uh, I'm just so excited that she's, she got to go home and be with him. In fact, we're leaving right after church. We're flying up there to Ohio. I'm preaching her funeral tomorrow. And uh, it's just a privilege and a blessing. And, and I'm just so thankful for her and her, her example that she set for me of what it looks like to live a life of sacrifice and that it's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, and then finally, another upside-down priority that we would have in our life would be to surrender, live a life of surrender. And this is similar to sacrifice, but it's different because this is all about control. This is about who controls your life. Who is in the driver's seat in your life? Because, you know, outside of our faith, everyone would say, well, I am. And that would be noble. 
you know, that we would control our life and make sure that we're intentional about getting the things and doing the things we want to do. But in, the, in our faith, it's not about us. It's not about us controlling our life. It is about us living a life of surrender. God calls us to surrender our will to him. And it's exemplified in the life of Jesus. If he did it, it's good enough for us too, right? In, in Matthew 26, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He knows he's about to be arrested, crucified, tortured, and he's praying to God, and he's struggling in prayer because he, he might have been God, but he had flesh, and it was going to hurt, and he knew it. And so in Matthew 26, 39, it says, He went on a little further and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus is saying, I'm surrendering my will to you. And you know, he calls us to surrender our will to him. If I, when I get an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, if they say, you know what, I wanna, I wanna give my life to Jesus, I wanna get saved. I would, I, I would never just take that moment to say, okay, well, here's what you do. You ask God to forgive you your sins. You admit you're a sinner. I need a savior. And you ask him to come into your heart and you're saved. That's the first part. But boy, there's a lot after that in there. And we do a disservice if we don't explain to people, listen, this is not just some get out of jail free card. This is about giving your life to Jesus. From this moment on, your life isn't your own anymore. You are surrendering your will. Your life is not about your will. It's not about your kingdom anymore. It's about his will and his kingdom. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And he calls us to surrender our lives to him just like he did for us. This is not about getting a, that we're drowning and Jesus comes with a life raft to get us on the raft to take us to dry ground. This is us, we're drowning, Jesus brings a life raft, we get in the life raft and we're in that raft with him and he's driving forever. It's about him now, it's not about us anymore. He doesn't just get us from one place to the other, he is everything. And the best way that I've even experienced in my life and even what I see in the word to even embrace and understand this lifestyle of surrender is to embrace our weaknesses. When we embrace, when we realize that we are weak, that we're not enough, it makes it easier to surrender because we realize I'm not strong enough anyway. And so I wanna surrender who I am to him because I can put myself, my faith, my hope, everything, my trust in him and trusting him in my life. It's all about embracing our weakness. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Man, who does that? Sometimes, you talk about upside down. Who wants to brag about their weakness? I mean, in my flesh, I would be, I'd rather be anything other than weak in my flesh. You know, and I know a lot of you would say, the only thing worse than being weak is being a Yankee. And I'm that too. So I have no chance. Actually, I'm converted. I've been here 20 years, so I think I'm, I think I'm okay now. In fact, when I go, in fact, we're going up to Ohio today. I'll get up there. They always want me to talk a lot because they want to see if the accent's kicked in. You know? So I'm kind of a mutt now. So I don't know. I don't fit anywhere. Maybe I need to go halfway in between. But, but you know, we don't want to be weak. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to embrace and boast about my weaknesses. You know, when I go work out and I come back, I don't want to brag to joy about how many chin-ups I couldn't do. I want to brag about how many push-ups I did do, right? And, and if I'm going to talk about, you know, the, the business we had, I don't want to brag about the, the huge mistakes I made that cost me tens of thousands of dollars. I want to talk about the successes I had, right? And spiritually, well, I don't want to brag about my weakness spiritually either. You know, I want to talk about my successes 
spiritually. I want to talk about and meditate on, you know, that I fasted for 20 days and the Lord spoke to me and it was beautiful. And I want to talk about the time I fasted 14 days and the time I fasted 10 days and seven days and three days and all these beautiful times of fasting where the Lord spoke to me. I don't want to talk about the countless times that I started a fast and by the end of the day I was in the pantry eating a bag of potato chips. I don't want to talk about those. I want to focus on the successes. But yet Paul says, I'm going to boast about my weakness. Why? Why would he do that? Why would we as Christians even want to do that? Well, I'm going to tell you why. And it is actually a thing of beauty. Because Paul, in the very next chapter, in 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us why we embrace our weakness. He says, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know about you guys, but I want God's perfect power in my life. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is some upside-down jank. Right? It makes no sense in the flesh. But man, when you look at it in the light of God and who he is, it makes all the sense in the world. We don't just boast about our weaknesses because we just want to be weak and have no strength. We boast about it because that is the gateway to where the power of God can rest on our life. Because God says, as long as you're going to try to do it for yourself, it's on you. God will not compete with us. And as long as you're going to try to do the behavior modification and look the role, you're on your own. He's not going to, his power is not going to rest on. I mean, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is very, very clear what Paul is saying here. If you want his power to rest on you, if you want his power to be perfect in your life, it comes through weakness. And that is upside down. The, the beauty of it is, though, is that when you know, when you, if you've lived long enough, especially in the, in the faith, if you've been a Christian for a while and, and you're trying to live this Christian life, you know that you absolutely cannot do it. Amen. You know how weak you are. You, you know how to put on the facade. I know how to make it look like I got everything together. I know how to say all the right words in worship. But man, sometimes those words are, are just, just muscle memory. You know, I'm thinking about everything else under the sun while I'm saying, oh God, you're so great, you're so wonderful, while I'm thinking about my checking account, right? We know how to look the part, so we know how weak we are. And Jesus, all Jesus says is, I just want you to embrace it and admit you're weak, and I'll go ahead and give you my power. We had a beautiful promise, a beautiful, beautiful promise from our God. In fact, Second Chronicles tell it even talks about it. Second Chronicles it says that the eyes of the Lord look all over the earth, looking for hearts who are His, so that He can empower them. So this isn't even just a New Testament concept. This is God's heart: is that I want hearts that are after Me, so that I can empower them. It's not do your best and let God do the rest. I know that's a popular bumper sticker, but that, that is not doctrinally sound at all. It's embrace your weakness and let God's power rest on you. That doesn't look as good on a bumper sticker, so I get it, but that's who we are called to be is a bunch of weaklings <laughs> or a bunch of people that admit that we are who we are so that God can be strong in us. And the thing is, we understand that we need it for salvation. You know, we know we, cannot, we can't do enough to get salvation. We know that. We know enough of the word. We know what Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says. It says, for it was by grace you've been saved, through faith, 
And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, or in other words, not by your own strength, so that no one can boast. So we know that we need God for our salvation, but for some reason, there's something in us, and I'm talking about us as humans, that, that struggles to allow that same strength from God that saved us to allow that strength to work in our life moving forward. It's almost like we feel like sometimes God says, you know what, I saved you, now the rest is up to you. When really nothing could be further from the truth. He says, I saved you, and now you better, you better let me come with you every minute of every day because you're going to need me. Because there's still a sin nature. There's still flesh. There's still an enemy of your soul that's trying to speak into your ear and get you to do and say what he wants you to do to accomplish his will for your life, which is to steal from you, to kill you, and ultimately destroy you. So we need him for everything and every minute of the day. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? And I'll close. Jesus wants to turn our priorities upside down. Right? And here's the deal. Priorities change in our life in the light of eternity. When we see and we know and we meditate and embrace the idea that this life on earth is just a, it's a vapor, the Bible says. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So what we're living for now is preparing us for our eternity. My aunt stepped into that eternity. And boy, I wish, I wish she could come down and talk to us just for a minute. Because she'd say, boy, there's a lot of things we worry about that we don't need to worry about. Our priorities can be so messed up sometimes. And I'm thankful for the grace of God because if, if, it, if it required us being perfect, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. So I'm thankful that he's gracious with us. But man, we can, if, if, we, if we will get our hearts in line with him, we will see that there's so many things we waste our efforts on that really aren't really helping our lives much at all. It's short term, but long term, it's causing us to actually struggle more in our relationship with him and really surrendering to him and sacrificing and being committed to him and his will for our life. When in reality, he knows best. And if we'll give ourselves to him, we get to experience his best for our life. So I want to pray for us. I just encourage you to respond just in your seat. If you want to kneel or if you want to just lift your hands or close your eyes, just receive this prayer today. I think it's important that we respond to the word of God in our life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we know that it is your word that transforms lives. Lord, we know that you are making us more like you, that you are transforming us into your likeness. God, would you take us to that deeper place? Lord, we want to look more like you today than we did yesterday. And we want to look more like you tomorrow than we do today. I pray that you would help us to be desperate for you, Jesus. Help us to see, give us a perspective change that we would see how desperate we are. We are desperate for you, but we don't always feel it. Help us to see it, recognize it, and embrace it. That you are everything that there's nothing we can do without you, Jesus. You are worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our sacrifice. You are worthy of our surrender in every way, 
in every way. God, we thank you for your grace today that doesn't judge us, but pours out forgiveness in our lives, Lord. And in the areas where we have had our priorities messed up, where we haven't allowed you to turn them upside down, Lord, we just come today and we repent. We repent of wanting to do things our own way, of wanting you to just kind of stay in the corner and we'll call on you when we need you. But Lord, that we would come and allow you to be in the driver's seat, that you would give us your purpose, that you would give us passion, that you would give us the drive to know you more. You deserve it, Lord. We love you. Would you change our hearts? Let, let what we know about you not just be in our head, but let it be in our heart. Do heart surgery on us, God, and let our hearts be good soil. Would you just seal this work in our lives today by your spirit? We pray that it would produce fruit in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We honor you today. We elevate you today, Jesus. Be glorified in our lives and in our midst. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. Praise God. Give God praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.